Well, thanks, Randy. It's great to be with you folks. And I have a little confession to make as I get started. And that is, I usually get depressed when I'm near a university campus uh, because I feel incredibly old when I'm around college students. But this weekend, it's different. Because I think at my hotel, they're having an old age convention. And I really bring the age curve down by being there. In fact, I've been called young man over a dozen times since Friday night, so I'm feeling good and young and energetic this morning. That, that doesn't mean I'll go super long, but it does mean that I'm feeling good. Well, I understand that you're in a series on the Beatitudes, and Randy asked if I would speak on Matthew 5, verse 7, and that's the mercy Beatitude. I think we have that up there. And so would you read that with me as we get rolling here? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Uh, do it again. That was a little weak, all right? Let's try it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, I'm not exactly sure why Randy assigned that beatitude to me. Uh, maybe he thinks I really need it, or probably my wife called and said, Randy, have Charles speak on that mercy thing because he really is low on the mercy scale. Well, regardless of how I got it, I got the, I got the beatitude. But that presented a question. How should I tackle it with you all? Maybe I should walk through word by word. Blessed are the... And that would be incredibly boring for you and for me. So we're not going to do that. Maybe we should compare and contrast this beatitude with the other beatitudes. But that would be really hard and time-consuming, and I wasn't about to do that. So then I thought, okay, I'll tell you a story. And... Maybe I'll retell you a story, because that's what Matthew does in his gospel. So at the beginning, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, where he lays out the characteristics of the kingdom, which are really nothing more than mirror pictures of the king. And then the rest of his gospel, he, does, he tells us about miracles and conversations and sermons and parables that show how those characteristics get lived out in relationship between human beings and God and humans and other people. And so I thought I would just tell you a story. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 18, and I'm going to read a story that Jesus tells, that Matthew records, all about mercy etiquette. Now, I know you know something about etiquette, but just to prime the pump a little bit and get you thinking that way, Everybody knows how to act at a funeral. Do you ever notice that? Like, you know, you show up. I don't think most people read a book on, like, funeral etiquette, but you show up at a funeral and you kind of know how to act. You don't act at a funeral the way you act at a tailgating event. Well, the way you have eyes going to show. Maybe you do act at tailgating the way you act at a funeral. I don't know. Um, how do you act at a funeral? Well, at a funeral, fun funeral you're kind of somber. You're respectful, quiet thoughtful, prayerful, offering condolences, etc. And you also tell lies at funerals. You ever notice that? Someone will say, doesn't he look so peaceful? He's dead. He doesn't look peaceful. Doesn't she look good? No, she doesn't look good. Uh, but funeral etiquette says you have to agree with those comments or make those comments. That's funeral etiquette. Everybody knows how to act at a wedding. There's wedding etiquette, right? You show up and you do whatever the mother of the bride does. 
So the mother of bride sits down, keys change in the music, mother of the bride stands, turns toward the back of the room, everybody else stands, immediately turns toward the back of the room, all the women get teary-eyed and mushy-faced and they hold on to their husbands and they remember their wedding day. The husbands are hoping it's over soon so they can go home and watch the ball game. That's kind of wedding etiquette, right? And then there's church etiquette. Now, how to, what's church etiquette? How do you act in a church? Well, in case you didn't notice, let me tell you, you show up on time. I'm actually impressed with you all. At, at my church, when we start, only like one-third of the people are there. But then after, you know, we kind of move on a little bit, the place is full, you all showed up. Not all of you, you know who you are, but most of you showed up on time. And then when the worship leader says, sing, you sing. When the worship leader doesn't say sing, you don't sing, right? And so when they're doing special music and the words are not on the screen, you don't, I heard some of you singing, slumber, you don't sing when the words aren't up there. That's church etiquette. Well, anyway, in the parable, Jesus tells us about mercy etiquette. And in the story, we're going to see a mercy violation. And in the mercy violation, we're going to understand how this mercy should flow to us and then through us. So follow along as I read beginning in Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Did you see the mercy violation? And we're outraged, just as Jesus' original listeners would have been outraged as well. Well, to understand what's going on in the parable, we need to start by understanding a little bit about the setting. So let's start with the setting. Did you notice what prompts the parable is a question from Peter? As you read through the Gospels, you discover Peter's usually talking. His mind's not in gear, but he's usually talking. And sometimes his mind catches up, often it doesn't. But at least on this occasion, Peter thought 
He had all of his ducks in a row. Peter thought this time he was going to hear a well done and attaboy, get a pat on the back from Jesus because he had studied this baby and he was ready for the pronouncement. He comes with a question and he says, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Now, before we get to his answer, um, let me give you the context. How many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Peter, remember, grew up as a good Jewish boy, so he would have learned and he would have studied and he would have tried to live out the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a principle that's sometimes referred to as eye for an eye. You've heard of that, right? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So an eye for an eye is actually a principle that's supposed to make the punishment and the crime fit rather than the punishment being so ratcheted up that it far surpasses the crime. So that principle, eye for an eye, Peter had cut his teeth on, and so he's surpassing that, though. Now, here's what the principle eye for an eye means. If somebody walks up to me and punches me in the face, I can't get three of my friends, grab crowbars, and go beat the daylights out of the person and send them to the hospital. That's not an eye for an eye. But it does mean if somebody walks up to me and punches me in the face, I can take my best shot and punch him back in the face one time. That's what the principle says. Now notice, Peter's far surpassing that eye for an eye thing. Oh yeah, the rabbis of Peter's day said, you need to forgive when somebody sins against you up to three times. That's why in baseball, three strikes and you're out. It comes, actually not, but that's the idea, right? So somebody sins against you, you turn the other cheek. Somebody sins against you a second time, turn the other cheek. Well, eventually you run out of cheeks, right? The third time, you let them have it. So Peter surpasses what the rabbis were saying. He surpasses the eye for an eye. He surpasses the three times. And Peter, he thinks, very mercifully says, up to seven times? And my guess is he closes his eyes and he's waiting for Jesus to say, wow, Peter, I didn't know you were were listening. When I said forgive, turn the other cheek, be merciful, be forgiving, you were listening. I would have never thought up to seven times, Peter, wow, you are like the most merciful, the most forgiven guy going. Uh, But that's not what Jesus says, right? In fact, here's what Jesus says. Peter, you're close. There is a seven in in the number, uh, but it's not seven. It's 77 times. Now, some of the older translations have 70 times seven. The point is actually the same. Probably it's 77, referring back to Genesis chapter 4. But the point is, you're not supposed to keep track. The point is, it's not on the 78th time you let them have it, or on the 491st time you let them have it. The point is, if you're not keeping record of sin, we are to forgive as often as people sin against us. We are to always be forgiving, always showing mercy, always being gracious. That's the principle. Continue to forgive without keeping count. That's the point. Now, it's right after that that Jesus cements what he's saying with the parable. Now, the parable happens in two scenes. So I'm going to walk you through each of the scenes because each of the scenes communicates something significant that we need to know that will drive us to do. In scene number one, the king distributes significant amounts of money to some of his trusted counselors and advisors. Now, you've got to understand, 
the king was fully expecting that those wise counselors would take the money and make wise investments because the king was expecting to get all of his money back, all the principal back, plus a good profit on the principal. Remember, remember when investments used to work like that? You made an investment, you expect your money back, plus it, well, it kind of works the other way now. But back in Peter's day, that's the way it worked. He gives some of the money to his trusted advisors. He's assuming they will make wise, prudent investments. He will then get back all of his principal, plus a pretty healthy profit. Oh yeah, but one of the guys that got a really big sum of money, he must have invested with Bernie Madoff or something. He not only doesn't come back with profit, He's lost all the principal. The principal was 10,000 talents. Now, whatever number you're thinking of, 10,000 talents, you need to multiply that exponentially. You know, a talent was a significant amount of money. This guy had squandered. He's lost 10,000 talents. That is an amount of money that he stands no shot of ever repaying. He couldn't repay this debt in a 1,000 lifetimes. This is a debt that's bigger than the debt of a kingdom, he stands no shot of paying it back. Now, do you understand what Jesus is getting at here? I mean, you're all really bright people. Jesus is not actually talking about finances and debts and principle and profit. Jesus is talking about moral debt. And Jesus is saying that you and I are like that servant that has squandered and owes God an enormous amount of righteousness, and we stand no shot of ever paying it back. In fact, if you wanted a point for the first act of the story, it would be, we're screwed. That's the bottom line, we're screwed. I mean, God has given us Um, life. God's given us the plans of how we should live. We decided to go our own way rather than God's way. And because of that, we've incurred an astronomical amount of debt and we stand no shot of paying that back. And all of a sudden the day of accountability comes and we're screwed. That's the point. Um, I'm not sure if any of you golf. Uh, I tend to golf or like to golf a little bit. I like it when it's warmer, but uh, are you watching this golf tournament that they're playing at Doral? I mean, it's amazing how far some of these golfers can hit the ball, right? I mean, Bubba and Rory, I mean, they killed the boy. And Dustin Johnson, 320 yards, right? Isn't a problem. Fly it right over the water on the left on the 18th hole. Um, I can't hit the ball 320 yards. Maybe in two shots, not in one shot. Right? 320 yards straight as an arrow across the, well, some of them hitting the water, but over the water. Um, here's the point. There is a chasm that has to be crossed morally. You may be able to hit the golf ball further than I can. You may be Dustin Johnson that can strike the golf ball 350 yards if all the circumstances are right. But the goal is not hitting the golf ball 350 yards. The goal is hitting the hitting golf ball from here to Chicago. I don't care how far you hit the golf ball. You can hit it 200 yards or 350 yards. Maybe you can hit the golf ball like one of these long drive guys, 420 yards, but you stand no shot of hitting the golf ball to Chicago. This guy is in such debt, the chasm between what he owes and where he is, it's from here to Chicago. He, you know, it really doesn't matter. If the goal is Chicago and you're in Champaign, it doesn't matter if you hit it 500 yards and somebody else hits it 200. You're never going to make it anywhere near Chicago. That's the situation he's in. 
He has incurred a moral debt that he stands no shot of being able to even begin to repay. Oh, yeah. And the king says, I forgive the debt. The king sees the guy, recognizes the position he's in. The king says, well, your wife will be sold, your children put in slavery, I'm going to sell all that you own. You're going to be thrown into prison until you can pay. He can't pay it back. But the king needs to make an example of him, or other counselors are going to squander the king's resources as well. And so the king says, to prison you go. But the guy throws a Hail Mary pass. Oh, king, please, please, I'll work real hard. I'll pay every penny of it back. He can't pay it back. right? It's just kind of a shot in the dark. The king empathizes with the guy. The king says, man, it must suck to be in your position. Wow, I forgive you. With a stroke of a pen... The king forgives his 10,000 astronomical debt, gone. Oh yeah, but make no mistake. That debt did not vanish into thin air. That kingdom was going to be financially crippled for the foreseeable future because 10,000 talents has been removed from the treasury. That king's lifestyle is now going to be crimped a little bit because he doesn't have the resources he had before the guy lost all the money. Yeah, so this king now is going to pay the price for forgiving the guy his astronomical debt. That's amazing, isn't it? And what Jesus is saying to us, you've incurred an astronomical debt. There's a chasm between you and God that you stand no shot of being able to ever cross. But God in his love and in his mercy, he built a bridge from where you are to where he is. That bridge is the bridge of his son. He sent his son to forgive that astronomical debt. And now we get mercy, we get life, we get freedom, we get grace, we get forgiveness. And it all comes from God, not from us. Now, we're not told that that first servant who's been forgiven all that debt, we're not told he really does anything. But at least in my mind, I'm thinking, do something, would you? Write the king a thank you note, right? Oh, king, thanks a lot. I can't believe you did that. You know, I'll clean the royal toilets for the next 50 years if you want. I can't begin to repay. You know, I'll like, I'll wash the chariots in the garage. I'll do whatever you want. We hear nothing from the guy. He just leaves. Oh, yeah. Scene number two. He leaves and he finds some guy that owes him a couple hundred bucks. Kind of a golf bet that he lost, right? Owes him a couple hundred bucks. And he says, hey, pal, where's my money? And they say, oh, you know, I'm really sorry, but I'll tell you what, just give me a little time. I'll repay every cent. The servant that's been forgiven, the 10,000 talents, grabs the guy that owes him a couple hundred bucks and begins to choke him. We didn't read that the king was choking his butt, right? But he's choking the guy that owes him 200 bucks now. He then says, pay it right now, or I'm going to throw you into prison. The guy can't pay it, so he has the other guy who owes him a couple hundred bucks thrown into prison. Now, Actually, he owes him 100 denarii. A denarii is basically a day's pay, which means this guy owes him a little more than three months' pay. Now, three months would really put a crimp in your lifestyle if you were to pay somebody, you know, what you earned in a quarter of your year. So whatever you're going to write on your tax form, we'll divide that by four. That's what the guy owes him. But you can pay that debt back, right? It would be tough, but you can pay it back. He chokes him, throws him into prison. Yeah, but eventually... The king finds out. Now, here's an interesting uh, question. How does the king find out? 
You read I read it to you. How did the king find out? The other servants ratted the guy out. Right? The other servants go to the king. King, you won't believe it. That guy that you forgave the 10,000 talents, he went out and choked some guy that owes him 200 bucks. Why did the servants rat him out? The servant that choked the guy who owed him 100 denarii, he was not breaking the law. Why did they rat him out? Because there was a violation of mercy etiquette. The guy had been shown mercy and had been forgiven 10,000 talents worth, and he's choking some guy that owes him 200 bucks. That's a mercy violation. And the other servants rat him out. So he goes back. The king brings him in. And the king says, what have you done? You sentence the guy that owes you a couple hundred bucks to prison. You're going to prison too. And your friend will be out long before you will. And he's thrown into prison because of the mercy violation. See how that works? Um, people who experience grace should extend grace. People who experience forgiveness should extend forgiveness. People who experience mercy should extend mercy. That's how it works. And see, what Jesus is telling us in that beatitude and what he's reminding us of in Matthew 18 is this mercy thing starts with God. And God forgives our astronomical moral debt. And once we've received that mercy, grace, and forgiveness, he doesn't want you and me to be the end users of that. He wants that mercy, grace, and forgiveness to then ripple through the kingdom because Jesus wants his kingdom to be known as a kingdom of mercy and a kingdom of grace and a kingdom of forgiveness. And so he forgives us an astronomical, incredible amount of moral debt so that we then will be merciful and gracious and forgiving to those around us so that the ripples of mercy just continue all the way through our relationships. That's what he wants to have happen. But it stops with the, with the servant that wouldn't forgive the guy that owed him a couple hundred bucks. Well, what are some lessons that we can tease out of this? Um, I know that you're all bright people. You could come up with your own lessons, but to tell you the truth, I don't trust you. <laughs> so I'll come up with some lessons for you, and then you can develop some other ones, but at least I'll get you started on the right track, all right? And you can figure it out. Here's the first thing. You have to know something about mercy, right? Mercy begins with empathy. You can't be merciful without being empathetic. Mercy begins with empathy. What's empathy? Empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes, looking at life from their perspective. Isn't that what the king did with the guy that owed him 10,000 talents? He puts himself into his situation and says, wow, it must be terrible. Wife, kids, possessions, himself, thrown in prison? That's a terrible way to... You know what? I can do something about it, and I will. Empathy. Empathy is putting yourself into someone else's shoes. Paul says that same empathetic principle this way. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. You ever notice how hard that is? Um, do you find it easier or hard to rejoice with people that are rejoicing? I don't know about you. That's hard for me, especially if their rejoicing actually is causing pain in my life. And you know what? Sometimes when people are mourning, I'm kind of happy they're mourning, right? You should be mourning. You mess with me, I'm glad you're mourning, right? But we mix it up. Rejoice with those that rejoice, mourn with those that mourn. I went to a Springsteen concert a couple weeks ago. Bruce is kind of my guy. And I've seen Bruce dozens of times in concert. But this last time I went when he was in Philadelphia, I've had the best seats ever. 
I was like in the sixth row, right on the corner of the stage, you know, right, right near this guy in the blue. That, that's where Bruce was to me, right here. And it was wonderful. But there was this one goofy guy in my section, you know, a few rows away, a few seats away, young guy who really couldn't appreciate all the nostalgia and all the things that Bruce and I have been through together, right? <laughs> and so this guy, but anyway, you want to know what happened after the concert? Somebody comes up into the stands, right? where, I, And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, Bruce wants to meet me or something, right? He has seen me at the concerts before. He invites that little goofy guy backstage to party with the band. I ride home with Jim Kaniski, sitting in the parking lot, waiting an hour to get out because there was so much traffic. Was I rejoicing with the goofy guy that got to go back? No, I was not. I was ticked off at the goofy guy, all right? Was he mourning with me? No, he was rejoicing backstage with the boss. It's hard to rejoice with those that rejoice, right? And mourn with those that mourn. But what Jesus is saying is, I created humanity to show mercy, and mercy begins with empathy. Do you realize that empathy is something we can do as human beings that animals can't do? And some of you think, hey, Charles, you've never met my dog. My dog is very empathetic. My dog looks at me if I'm eating potato chips, and her eyes get real sad, and tears well up in the corner, and she sighs and drools, and she's empathizing with me eating chips. No, she's not. She's hungry. In fact, I can show you your dog's not empty. The next time your dog's eating, you get down on your hands and knees next to your dog's bowl. And you look over and have tears in your eyes and you drool. See if the dog pushes the bowl over near you so you can have some. There's no empathy. And don't get me started on cats. Cats are demonic. There's no empathy there. Mercy starts with empathy. If there's no empathy, there can be no mercy. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Mourn with those that mourn. Boy, that's counterintuitive. That's not natural. That's supernatural. But if you've been shown mercy, you should trigger mercy and you should experience mercy when you look at people that need it extended to them. But mercy doesn't end with empathy. Mercy moves to action. The king doesn't just feel bad for the guy. The king forgives his debt. Whenever you read that Jesus was compassionate, Jesus was feeling mercy, Jesus was empathetic, he always does something then. Jesus had compassion on them, so he sent the disciples out because they were like people, sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has compassion, and he heals the guy that's blind. He has compassion, and he heals the guy that can't walk. Empathy drives us to action. Now notice, the king doesn't forgive everybody's debt in the kingdom. The king does what he can do. The king has a guy before him that owes 10,000 talents. The king can forgive the guy right before him his 10,000 talents, and he does it. He empathizes, and he acts. He forgives the 10,000 talents. Oh, yeah, and mercy always will involve sacrifice. The king's lifestyle was now changed because he forgave the guy the 10,000 talents. The kingdom was going to be financially pinched because the king forgave the guy his 10,000 pounds. Mercy begins with empathy, moves to action, and always involves sacrifice. Does that story sound familiar? Yeah, Jesus, our king, he didn't just empathize by imagining what it's like to put himself into our shoes. He put on flesh and blood and became a human being. I mean, that, that's the ultimate empathizing Jesus was moved to action. In the incarnation, he lived a life and he died in our place. That's action. And was there sacrifice involved in bringing forgiveness, mercy, and grace to us? You bet there was ultimate sacrifice. Yeah, Jesus the great 
mercy giver. He empathizes. He was moved to action. And at great sacrifice, he forgives us that astronomical moral debt. Well, that's kind of the first lesson. And I know you would have thought of that, but that's the first one. Now, here's the second one. Experience should always move to extension. As we have experienced mercy, we should extend mercy. As we've experienced forgiveness, we should, be, we should forgive. As we experience grace, we should extend grace. We are not end users here. That's the point. There was a mercy violation in the parable because the servant that was forgiven 10,000 talents had the mercy process stop with him. And all the servants knew it. That was a violation. And so they run back to the king and rat him out. I wonder if there were servants around us. There would be a lot of people running back to the king ratting us out. Because we often function like end users of mercy, don't we? But Jesus shows us mercy so that we can extend mercy to others. Um, Do you know what an oxymoron is? You know what an oxymoron is? An oxymoron... is the combination of words or phrases that seemingly don't go together. So here are some of my favorite oxymorons. Great Depression. Clearly confused. Pretty ugly. Virtual reality. Jumbo shrimp. Awfully good. Oxymorons. But you want to hear uh, the most absurd, the most ridiculous oxymoron ever that makes all of those pale in comparison? Arrogant, unmerciful Christian. That's an oxymoron. If we have been the recipients, and we are the recipients, of 10,000 talents worth of moral debt being forgiven at great sacrifice on the part of our Savior. How in the world can we think of ourselves as superior? How do we then withhold mercy and forgiveness and grace from other people? Yeah, that's not an oxymoron. That is a mercy violation of the highest order. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful they will be shown mercy what's he saying i am the merciful king and i have forgiven the astronomical moral debt of all of you that have trusted jesus in the sacrifice he made on your behalf but i don't want that mercy to end with you i dispense that astronomical amount of mercy to you so that you then become channels of mercy and grace and forgiveness to the people in your network and in your life i want the ripples of mercy to begin with me jesus says and to go through my people into their communities into their families into their workplaces into their place into the places where they play i want the principle of mercy in my kingdom to be established through my people wherever they go so let's end the mercy violation huh now let's follow the principle of mercy etiquette wouldn't that be a good deal we have been forgiven an astronomical debt think about that debt look at the empathizing action 
and sacrifice that your Savior made. And then go and show mercy to others. And I'll let you know a little secret. You will never extend mercy if you focus on the pain that that person caused you. And you'll never extend forgiveness and mercy if you focus on the other person because they really are a jerk. Right? You never. How are you going to extend mercy? When you look at your incredible debt and your Savior forgiving it all and you could do nothing about it. In response, in thanksgiving, let's practice mercy etiquette and give up the mercy violation. That's a pretty good plan, don't you think? Let's pray.